I've worked on many projects of sensitive material and I've never encountered an environment as hermetic as Vox. Um, I've never had more people start conversations by asking, are you recording this conversation? Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning journalism here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm excited because we have some big news coming up. That's right. It's coming up on December, which means we are about to announce the 2019 DuPont Columbia Award winners on December 11th, in fact. Yes, we're going to have an announcement with one of our hosts this year, Leslie Stahl, the longtime correspondent from CBS News 60 Minutes. She'll be joined by Elsa Chang at our January ceremony, so we're looking forward to that. And we have just an amazing group of winners that we're going to be announcing publicly on Tuesday, December 11th. That's right. Elsa Chang, of course, one of the hosts of All Things Considered, also a J School grad, also a DuPont winner. So today we're going to hear a conversation from one of our recent Film Friday screenings. That's right. It was your conversation, in fact, about Divide and Conquer. It's a film that premiered this year at the Toronto Film Festival, and it was immediately snapped up by Magnolia Pictures for wide release. And it is about the life and times and legacy of Fox News founder Roger Ailes. A very prominent figure in today's news environment possibly, I don't know, one of the leading forces that is responsible for the rise of Donald Trump. Alexis Bloom was the director of this film, and our guest was Will Cohen, a producer from Jigsaw Films. He himself is a former frontline producer for many years. He's reported around the world, and he is at Jigsaw, where he also produced a Netflix documentary series called Dirty Money. That's right. And he talked to us a little bit about how Instead of the typical producer-director division of labor for Divide and Conquer, there was more of a kind of a Siamese twins relationship between him and Alexis. I think they shared a lot of the same duties, and he had a lot to say about the film. Sounds like it was really collaborative. Um, We should explain there will be a reference to someone named Bill Shine in the conversation, who's a former top Fox News executive. Yes. Now, he also was implicated in Roger Ailes' sex abuse scandal. And he was never actually accused of harassing women at the networks, but he was named in a bunch of lawsuits that said that he covered up Ailes' misconduct. He, of course, has denied wrongdoing and left Fox and is now ensconced at the White House as their top communications person. Right. Another reference that we're going to hear in the conversation refers to a place called Cold Spring, which is about an hour north of New York City. And it's where Roger Ailes and his wife Elizabeth lived in his final years. And they bought up a lot of property around there and even bought up the local newspaper. He was a bit of a divisive figure up there as well, since um, some accused him of kind of turning the newspaper into a bit of a mini Fox News for local news. So without further ado, here's an edited version of my conversation with producer Will Cohen about Divide and Conquer. This is so Congratulations exciting. on the film. Thank you for spending your Friday night with Roger Ailes. It's no, it's no small ask. Um, so tell us, the or- what is the origin story? Sure. Alex was interested in Rupert Murdoch as a story. And what happened as they tried to develop the idea was that it actually quite quickly became clear that Rupert Murdoch is a ruthlessly effective capitalist, but not a terribly interesting subject, actually. He's a bit mechanical, whereas Roger Ailes once you look at him, you realize there's this bigger Shakespearean kind of quality to him. 
um, and so it became Roger as a as a way of getting at those same kind of material, same kind of story, same kind of issues. And I should say it was all developed while Roger was still alive. The hope at the time was that he would participate. Hard to know how plausible that is, given his penchant for the desire for control in all things. And the notion that someone else would tell his story, I think, would drive him crazy. But he, the hope was that he would participate, maybe in a Robert McNamara kind of way. And then he died. Then there was this moment of, you know, is it still, does it still make sense to make this movie? And I think it took about 45 seconds for everyone to think, yes, it's, it's, you know, there's a legacy here that's worth looking at. But there are specific challenges to making a film about a dead person, correct? I mean, how did you tackle, there were some creative strategies that you employ in the film to keep, ha have his voice in the film. How did that evolve? I mean, we always wanted him to have his own voice, as it were, in the film. Um, and it was tricky, even with, before his death, it was tricky in that he's one of these figures who somehow had woven his way through all different parts of American history, but is, he's the consummate man behind the camera, really, and there's not that much of him on camera. What there is, the best of it is in the film, and the worst of it, it's these interviews where he's incredibly composed and sort of avuncular and quite boring, and he tells the same story over and over again, and we had this feeling throughout of like, you know, we'd hear anecdotes about irascible Roger and funny Roger and the explosive temper and all these things that you just want to see and they don't exist on camera. So the challenge became how do we bring him to life and where we landed was to just mine the abundant interviews given over the years, including print interviews, because there was good stuff there and try to find a way to animate that. And we landed with an actor reading his words, which was a creative decision that you can tell me if you think it works. Right, I mean, he does, and he does have some really memorable lines. One of his famous lines that we know here very well is his feeling about Columbia Journalism School. That he I wondered if you knew that. Yes, now. yes, we're familiar with it, as uh, my colleague was reminding me earlier. I believe it's that he says that his main qualification for running Fox News was that he never went to Columbia Journalism School. That's correct, yes. So it's and he, it's one of these punchlines he would go back to over right, and right, right, he right, right. ditches for a living, and he never went to Columbia Journalism There's a few things he would say. He would go back to, right, right, right. So when we spoke to Alexis, she said that you two operated on this film with the same, with one brain, the two of you in a partnership. Um, and in our documentary program here, our students work in pairs as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, relationship or what it's like produ with a producing partner? It's the best. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's the best when it works, right? I mean, every partnership probably has that trick of finding the dance that's gonna work for the two or more personalities involved. I think we pretty quickly realized our brains work differently and that was a strength. And she would give me hell for being focused on dates and chronology and how did the order proceed. And so we, I think we divided the work to suit our strengths, basically. And we'd had these interviews that would have a bit of a schizophrenic feeling where there'd be her style for a while and then I would insist on some things and then she'd take over again. And it was, I mean, she would do the interviews, but that the, the kinds of information ended up being complementary because of different styles. Right, so it sounds like it was a, a good dynamic. We had an enormous amount of fun making this film, which sounds a bit, I don't know, ironic at best. It's hard material, and I think the whole team, I think we all felt from the beginning that this was a story that was about the present, right? It was about using Roger's story to try to make sense of where we were as a country. And that was positive in the sense that it gave us a point of entry to a difficult complicated national moment, but it also was trying, and the, you know, the, the Me Too stuff was get, gathering momentum, and 
it's not, none of it is happy stuff. So I think the fact that you have a film family that is healthy and happy and is able to find humor in moments that makes all the difference. And there are, I mean, there's so much to the story, but there does seem to be three specific threads, right, in terms of Roger's career, the Me Too, the harassment allegations, and then his time in Cold Spring. I'm, I'm sure there were many more storylines than that. I'm curious how you ended up focusing on those three, par how did that structure evolve? One of our starting points was that we all felt that the question of his larger legacy was probably the most important piece of it. That that felt like if this became only a story about sexual harassment, we were not getting the storytelling right. Um, that said, the sexual harassment story is hugely important, especially in the plot, and it was gathering strength as the story develops, very much so. And it's funny, it's hard to remember how much Gretchen Carlson's case came out of the blue to some degree. It was, it was really an incredibly gutsy, brazen move by her. Like, there was no, I think now we've become accustomed to these moments of allegations surface and, you know, may not go quickly, but people go down. Whereas this was not a foregone conclusion at all. The Harvey Weinstein thing hit, I guess it was, we were at least six or eight months into production. So it's, we watched that, you know, we're following all of that stuff and, and trying to make sense of how do we maintain our story about media culture and American democracy and the Trump presidency and have a story that feels relevant to a quickly changing one. And there's always that danger of don't chase the ambulance, don't chase the headline. Um, do we need to deal with Michael Wolff's book about Trump? Like all these things keep happening. It's this, so it's this balance of trying to hold on to the story that we knew we needed to tell and then also keep it feeling relevant and ideally have them feed into each other and echo each other. And that was one of the hardest things. Cold Spring, we knew it had to be in there somewhere because it felt like such a microcosm of so many things. Um, and it felt like a way to get out of Fox News world, media world, and into America, as it were. And so we knew it had to find a place, but it was tricky, and we tried many different versions of it. And there were fights about whether it belonged in the film at all, and I'm glad that it stayed. And, but I think it was always, it was ideally going to work as a, as a kind of case in point that would serve the l other larger themes. And then there's the relationship with Donald Trump. I mean, Trump is sort of around the edges of the film without taking over the film. You know, and even after Ailes left or was fired from Fox News, did, didn't Trump hire him as an advisor on the campaign or wasn't he somehow an yeah, yeah, it's it's a little unclear what the formality of the arrangement was, but he was certainly in that coterie of people who was around Trump, which I think had been the case for years. It's, they, they moved in the same circles, as I understand it. Um, and he certainly, speaking of Michael Wolff's book, he's, he, you know, there's this anecdote at the beginning of Fire and Fury where it's after the election and it's a dinner party and it's Steve Bannon and it's Roger Ailes at dinner and they're chatting about does Trump realize what he's taken on here. He's clearly still at the table even after his Fox days are over. And so how did you all decide how much Trump, I mean, how to balance the presence of Trump, the responsibility for Trump, the credit for Trump? It felt like the end point of the arc of his career to some degree. Bear with me, this is only half cooked, but it's, it's sort of, I, I see Trump a bit as a Frankenstein monster that Ailes creates and then loses control of to some degree. He's obviously you know, giving Trump credibility by putting him on the, on the air and letting him talk about issues. And, but I think then during the course of the campaign, and it was more complicated than we could get into in the film, but the, the tensions around Megyn Kelly and, and sort of there's a whole TikTok of who's controlling who during the campaign. And what becomes clear is that Trump is something 
actually bigger than Fox to some degree in his ability to use the media, use the Twitter feed, whatever it is, he escapes Roger's control to some degree. And, and I think it's not coincidental then that Roger falls, right? It's, it's, at least it's simultaneous, if not related. So you guys have some incredible interviews in the film. I mean, Glenn Beck, th these, some women who were harassed by Roger. How, what was the booking process like? How hard was it to get Glenn Beck to sit down with you? Was it hard? It was hard. It was hard. And this is one thing that I mean, Alexis deserves enormous credit for getting these people. And Glenn Beck, she got on a plane and went to Dallas and basically doorstopped him at home at his facility in Dallas. But it was like, we're going to go. We're gonna, you're going to tell me no in person. Um, he'd already said no. Um, so that was not easy. I mean, the, the crisis consultants who talk at the end that Alexis worked on that for months, and the answer was no, 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 no. It's fair to say that no one was running to participate in this film. Um, I mean, either you're suspicious of our motives, or you don't see any upside to being associated with the legacy of a toxic character. It's just, what's, what's the win here? We, I mean, it was scores and scores of people. We had a lot of conversations with people who told us, you know, things on background that we're never going to participate. We had people agree to participate and then back out very suddenly. Um, there's always this sense it's you know, you're in Fox world and there's the paranoia is infectious and you start to think, are they all talking to each other and deciding who's going to participate? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We tried everybody. We did not try Donald Trump. It cursed me. But he's in the film. I mean, I feel like yes, he's in the film plenty. His views on Roger are clear. In terms of the culture at Fox, I mean, has it changed at all today? Do you have any sense of uh, sort of Roger's culture continuing inside the news organization after his departure? Do you, I mean, any insight into that? I'm very little. It's, I mean, it's our, our visibility into Fox is limited. We tried very hard. I, I have n I've worked on <laughs> many projects of sensitive material and I've never encountered an environment as hermetic as Fox. Um, I've never had more people start conversations by asking, are you recording this conversation? Just the, the assumption is that you're recording or that something is behind your initial request. And we had conversations with people who have left recently. I'm not sure I can say how much has changed. I mean, I think, I think we all see the product if we watch. We certainly get the tone. Um, I don't know about whether the culture of harassment is different at all. So interesting. Uh, you know, at the end of watching a film like this, which is beautifully edited, so much great archival, how did you guys research that? Did you license any of that, of the Fox footage, or where did all this beautiful archival yeah, come I, I, from? We went through the process of trying to license from them, and they turned us down. Um, so it becomes, how do you get Fox footage? So how do you and, get the footage, yeah. And all of the different permutations of that we tried, the, the, you know, the dudes in their basement who've recorded everything for 30 years, and they're out there. We found them. Um, it was all of that, and then and then the little tiny gems, the like North Ohio Board of Agriculture that had the film that was a war, like that kind of detail. Our team was brilliant. In terms of licensing, we licensed everything that we could, and the Fox material we did not because we had no option. We used the Internet Archive, and we used in video monitoring services, and we got the best we could from wherever we could. So it's fair use. It is. What do you want audiences to take away from this film? I hope it provokes thinking about our media culture. I hope people walk out thinking about how media narratives are created and how they're sustained. And I hope people think about, put it this way, one thing we hear a lot is, you know, 
doesn't the left need a Roger Ailes to counterbalance Roger Ailes? And that idea, I both understand its appeal, but makes me very uncomfortable. Um, I can't, I feel like that's allowing Roger to define the terms of our culture in a way. We, we don't escape his trench warfare model of the world. I hope people leave the film thinking about how problematic that is and, and what the answer to that is. I mean, maybe the answer is Columbia journalism is, is more reporting, is more, you know, stick to the facts and um, don't give up on the model. I, I certainly hope that's the case, but I, I came away from working on the film with deep concern about how our media culture evolves from this point. Did you take this to dock clubs and all that? And is, there, is there anything that people said, put this in that you wish you could have put in? There's all kinds of stuff that I wish were in the film. There always is. There's a whole chapter in Roger's life in the 1970s, basically after the Nixon campaign. He lobbies to get a job in the Nixon White House. He, doesn't, he does some sort of here and there work, but doesn't get a formal position. Pre-Watergate, he goes into a bit of a vision quest kind of he gets a little lost for a while, and he moves to New York City and becomes an off-Broadway producer, which is this moment where he's sort of a, he's, you know, dating starlets and producing off-Broadway, and he's wearing very colorful sweaters. And there's this point, I guess it's a little later, where he starts producing the Stanley Siegel Show, which is a local talk show in New York City, which was a bit zany. And there's episodes which we found of Roger dressed up as Fidel Castro, carrying a chicken, like it's this whole, costumed version of Roger Ailes that no one has seen and still unfortunately no one has because it made the first act of the film way too long. But there's great, yeah, it's bottomless. Wow, I want to see that picture. Uh, you talked about no. some of the difficulty of getting a couple of those interviews and I was just wondering what exactly it took to turn some of those no's you're consistently getting into a yes finally. It's always a question. What's the thing that's going to make people see the prospect differently? I think I mean, the one that we watched play out almost in real time was the crisis communications people, where they initially, they just, it just, it goes against everything in their business, right? It's that like you don't talk about your clients, it's, it's 101. But I think what happened is over the course of months, it, the momentum of Me Too changed, and I think they started to see that there was political cover for coming forward and talking about client. And I think, I think they took a risk doing it, but I think they started to feel that the value in doing it was you know, justifiable in every way, and that they actually wanted to participate, and that they, they felt they could offer a perspective that no one else could, which I think is very true. Grateful for it. I think I mean, Glenn Beck is interesting. I think he probably came from a place of general skepticism about the project, and you know, what's the take you're going to bring to this? At the time, he had been outspoken to some degree about misgivings about Trump. So for him, it was more about coming to terms with our vision of the project and feeling comfortable with what our take was going to be. And we had a few people also vouch for us with him, who he knew from Fox World, which also helped. Um, relationships is probably the single most persuasive tool. And I have to say, you guys did a great job with the Bill O'Reilly piece of it, because that could have, I mean, that could have been its own documentary, right? That could have overtaken, but that was... Great. Yeah, I mean, clearly it, it belonged in there, but yeah, it, yeah, it, but how much? But how much? Yeah. I was struck by what I, t 
two things I didn't see in the film, and I wondered if they were in an earlier version. One was the concept of journalism and how Fox News changed or affected what we think of when we think of journalism. They called themselves a news organization. Mm -hmm. And you didn't sort of explore that at all. The fact that, I mean, in my opinion, they're not a news journal, a journalistic organization at all. But I wondered if that was like something that got yeah, kicked around a yes. lot. We talked a lot about the balance in the film of how much it was a Roger Ailes film, how much it was a Fox News film. Again and again, the way to keep our hands around the project and not have it sprawl was this is a Roger Ailes film. But he was Fox News, as yes. everyone kept saying. Yes, no, for sure. And I think it was something certainly that we were aware of. And I think we tried to get at it through show, don't tell. More, sort of tried to do it obliquely. I'm not sure we always succeeded, but I think that was the intention, trying to keep it locally, localized on the man rather than the institution. It's a lot to bite off. I mean, it is. Yeah. But so the second part of the question, what also was missing and it's related to me, I mean, obviously most of the interviews were people who were affiliated directly, personally with the story, but there were people on the other side of the political spectrum. And I was, and I was wondering why you didn't hear from anyone who would remark about where they felt Fox had brought us from a critical standpoint. A couple things. One, we felt strongly that we wanted to talk to include people who were in the room with Roger. We were very aware that there was a lot of talk about, you know, you should get David Axelrod. They sort of, the, there were these people who would clearly have a lot to say and be interesting about Roger's influence, but then they also, their presence, I think, would tilt the film. It would feel like a film on the scale, like this is a lefty film and we're building a case against Roger Ailes. You can argue that the film still is that, but I, I think we were conscious of not wanting to do that and trying to talk to people as much as we could who would fill in a picture that was nuanced. I mean, Roger didn't like to call himself a conservative. That's actually something else we struggled with. We tried to find him talking about his political values and it's extremely difficult to have him make any kind of statement about what he believes. One of the first voiceovers is he talks about, I, I'm, like, I believe in traditional values. And I think that gets at something that I think people feel that the world is complicated and slipping away from what they know. And he is offering a version that feels familiar and stable and that he is giving them purchase on something that they feel otherwise is slipping away. People talk about the, the specific example of um, the war on Christmas, which is you know widely derided in liberal press because please, the war on Christmas. But that's, it's, people say that's, that's vintage Roger because it's simple and it sticks in your mind. Like, I, how could they attack Christmas? Like, it surely, there's nothing sacred. And it's not healthcare or the economy. It's not big and complicated. It's your Christmas tree and it's what you want to do in your home. And it catches something visceral for people. And that he did that again and again. Alison Camerata was saying she was listening to the Kavanaugh hearings and you know, I like beer, you know, I still like beer. Do you like beer? And she said she hears, that's Roger talking. And, you know, Kavanaugh was briefed by Bill Shine for a day before the hearings. And it's that, the, the cadence and it's the, the reducing of a whole ideology and a whole grievance down to three words, right? Down to beer. Beer is all you need. And that's the legacy. And I think it's, it's that that was working for people, that knack for something that the, the hook that keeps you. Something that's 
that we've been having a lot of discussions in our documentary class about is what is journalism in terms of documentary filmmaking because documentaries can really straddle this line of traditional journalism but also advocacy and social justice. So this, if it was a written piece, would come across as pretty one-sided um, because there aren't a lot of you know voices that are standing up for him or really supportive of him. So do you consider this to be a work of journalism or is this something else and how do you define each of those things? I think it's a documentary film. I think it's infused with journalistic values. Um, at the same time, you know, you wouldn't have evocative images of harassment scenes in a magazine article. I think it's great to engage with the question, but I think it's important that film, documentary film is allowed to be many things. I think it's important that, again, that the values are upheld, and I get very frustrated when I see films that I, I think are playing sort of in the name of journalism, like we, you know, we want, we're journalists except when we don't feel like it and mm -hmm. that makes me very uncomfortable and we certainly try to avoid that. But I think it's important, this moment is great, I mean, it's, it's you know, what a great moment for nonfiction programming. It's like Netflix is spending millions of dollars on fact-driven filmmaking. So I feel like there's a lot of possibility in the moment, but I, I guess I, I want to be as vigilant as you are about what is being declared journalism and, and what the standards are and I think what the New York Times does and what ProPublica does, is what the New Yorker does, is different from what this is. And I think they can be in dialogue with one another, but I think to declare a kind of standard for what everything has to be is actually not helpful. All right, well, Will Cohen, congratulations on this film. It's great to have you here. Thank you for Thank coming. Thank you so much. No, Thank you. Thank you again to Will Cohen and everyone at Jigsaw for bringing Divide and Conquer up to the journalism school. There was, there's a ton of buzz around this film, so it was a real thrill to get to show it to give students a sneak peek before it's released theatrically. That's right, and if you missed it, of course, it's being released theatrically on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. What do we have coming up next? Well, uh, for our last podcast of the year, we were lucky enough to get Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a very celebrated writer for the New York Times Magazine, to come up to the journalism school and talk to students with Lester Holt, the anchor of NBC Nightly News. Nicole is the winner of this year's John Chancellor Awards, and she came and spoke to students here. Yeah, and she gave a really interesting, passionate bunch of advice for students. And she even hung around after the conversation to talk to students for like an hour when the conversation ended. That's Just incredible. That's like the Q&A after the Q&A. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. Since it is the Thanksgiving season, Lisa, I just want to say how thankful we are here at On Assignment for all the support we get from the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. Absolutely. This was uh, produced by J School grad Sarah Wyman with the help of our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Until next time.